Well, we're back in the uh, epistle of James, and uh, I'm going to ask you today if you open your Bible to James chapter 3, and we will complete James chapter 3 today. As a matter of fact, I've entitled this message, The Test of, of Godly Wisdom, The Test of Godly Wisdom. And we're going to take a look today, particularly what James has to say regarding biblical wisdom, biblical wisdom. Webster's Dictionary defines wisdom as, and I quote, the ability to discern inequalities in relationships, good sense, generally accepted belief, and accumulated philosophical or scientific learning. That's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is a lot of the accumulation. I like to say it's the accumulation of data. There's a lot of data that we're absorbing. You know, years ago they used to say this was called the information age. And the reason it was called the information age is because every single day we're being bombarded, bombarded, bombarded with information. There's so much information that we've learned. When we looked at James chapter 3 before we left off, we saw that James spoke about the tongue and how out of the mouth the heart speaks. And to put it simply, the proud heart, the proud heart will be boastful. The proud heart will be self-oriented, seeking to glorify himself rather than God. You see it, James said, in your speech. In essence, James were saying, you are how you speak. The bitter heart, the bitter heart will speak bitter words. The perverse heart will speak out perverse things. And the sinful nature will speak out that which is sinful toward God. Likewise, the Holy Spirit-filled believer is going to speak out words that are edifying and glorifying to God. James' whole premise is, which one are you? Which one are you? You know, we know that Jesus had mentioned, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What was Jesus really saying? He's saying, how you speak really reflects who you are. It reflects who you are in character. And now James is going to take the same issue related to wisdom. Wisdom. How do you live? So as we conclude James chapter 3, James now focuses on the issue of true spiritual wisdom. By the way, this is so desperately needed in the church of Jesus Christ today. We need not to be driven by intuition. We need not to be driven by the culture we need not to be driven by television and ads. What the believer needs above everything else is true biblical wisdom. And biblical wisdom is not the mere accumulation of facts. Because of its practicality, we talked about this, right? James is a book about practical living faith. That's what it's a book about. Practical living faith. And because 
This book is often referred to as James is to the New Testament as Proverbs is to the Old Testament. Why? Because Proverbs is practical living, right? Practical living. It's giving advice on practical living. And likewise, the epistle of James is similar. And James is following in that great Jewish tradition of wisdom literature that we find in the scriptures. Books such as Proverbs, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon. And the Jews, to the Jews, wisdom was the right application of godly living. That's what wisdom was. It's the right application of godly living. And it's not the mere collection of thought. It doesn't rely merely in the intellect. To be wise is for us to pour out the wisdom that we attain, and it's poured out in the way we walk, in the way we live. True wisdom is the right application of knowledge in life practice. Saving faith is that which is applied, and it's not applied in the head. Where is it applied? In the heart. And likewise is wisdom. True wisdom, James is going to say, is known by its works. And this is what James will be showing us here in verses 13 through 18. Jonathan Edwards was perhaps probably the greatest theologian, the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers in America. If you ever want to read an interesting life story, read the story of Jonathan Edwards, man. I mean, here was a man that was so profound. But I found this quote from Jonathan Edwards. He says this, A truly humble man is sensible of his natural distance from God, of his dependence on him, of the insufficiency of his own power and wisdom, and that it is by God's power that he is upheld and provided for, and that he needs God's wisdom to lead and to guide him and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. I love that Last sentence there. Let me say it again. That he needs God's wisdom to lead and to guide him and his might to enable him to do what he ought to do for him. Believers, that's what we need. Oh my goodness, we need God's wisdom. We desperately need God's wisdom to lead us and to guide us through this life. Because it's all about how we finish, is it not? And we want to be men and women that finish well before the Lord. We want to be men and women of whom the Lord would say, Welcome in thy faithful servant. You've been uh, faithful in a little. Now I'm going to make you faithful in much. We need that wisdom. But in addition to the wisdom, we need his might to enable us to do what we ought to do for God. Christianity is not a solitary sport. God doesn't call us to be saved and then leave a private life all by ourselves. God has enabled and equipped every believer with at least one spiritual gift. And the only place that is to be applied is in the church of Jesus Christ. 
that we're to take those spiritual gifts and apply them in the church of Christ. And as Christ took the five loaves and the two fish, that he's to break them and he's to multiply them to feed many. To feed many. Today in James 3.13, in 3.13 through 18, James will define for us what true biblical Christian wisdom looks like and what the impact should be on our lives. And we're going to see the following. Number one, we're going to see the test of godly wisdom in verse 13. Number two, we're going to see the contrast of godly wisdom to worldly wisdom in verses 14 through 16. And then we're going to see the fruit of godly wisdom in verses 17 and 18. So read with me James 3, 13 through 18. The word of God reads as follows. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant so to lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is, is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, Lord, as, as we look into your word, will you pour forth your spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of truth, of conviction. And Father, Lord, we pray that all teaching, all preaching is designed to change hearts. So we ask you today, Father, change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 13. James is transitioning from the tongue and how speech reflects the person's true character. James approaches wisdom from the exact same perspective. True wisdom, as I mentioned, is the correct application of knowledge of godly living in one's life. That's true wisdom. You know, it's interesting. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Notice that the Bible doesn't say the fool is an atheist. What's an atheist? An atheist is a fool. Why? Because the atheist says there's no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The denying of godly truth is foolishness. The application of godly truth is wisdom, is wisdom. Therefore, the genuinely redeemed of God should be marked by the application of this knowledge and not by the mere accumulating of facts. And that mere accumulation of facts, that has no impact on one's life. My goodness, I've been around people for most of my life that, you know, may quote the Bible back and forth and, and, and they're ready to, you know, they could cite you chapter and verse, but there's something missing in their life. What's missing 
is, is the power of God. What's missing is the person of God. What's missing is the spiritual application. And what comes out of all this accumulation of data, what comes out? Pride. Pride. They're ready to rip you apart if you don't hold to some of the traditions that they hold you. They're ready to destroy you and slay you with the word of God in wrong application. There's too much of that. Biblical wisdom is not connected to education or degrees. I remember my Sunday school teacher, a man with a ninth grade education, burned alive in a fire. Over 90% of his body, third degree burns. When his family got to the hospital, they didn't even talk about whether he was going to live. They told the family, go make plans. He's not going to make it through the night. He lived for two years and spent two years in the hospital going over a hundred skin grafts. He survived. The left side of his ear was completely gone. It was just a hole in the head. It had all burnt away in the fire. If you would look at him, he was a man with patches all over his body, skin grafts all over his body. It took him six months. They had him playing checkers incessantly for physical rehabilitation so that he could stretch the skin grafts that were on his hand. He was a walking miracle. I always said of him that he was a man who literally walked through the fires of hell. But he lived. Never cursed God. Never said, why me? At 14 years old, he became my Sunday school teacher. Ninth grade education. That man knew more Bible than I'll ever know. That man lived more Christ than I would ever want to. He was a man resounding in biblical wisdom and strength. And I've never forgotten him. Even when in his old age he began to suffer from Alzheimer's disease. And even there, like many of the other saints that I've known that have suffered dementia, the wisdom that they obtained stayed with them until the days that they went home to be with the Lord. Biblical wisdom means nothing. A lot of people have a lot of letters after their name. That doesn't make them biblically wise. Who's wise? It's the man who takes the truth of God, the wisdom of God, and applies it to their life. Solomon stated this. You guys know this, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. He goes on to say, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the question asked in verse 3 Verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13 is this. Who is wise in understanding? That's the question. James uses the word wise. That means, basically, it means learned. It means cultivated. It means a 
has a skill. And he uses the word understanding. The only time this word, this particular Greek word, is used in the New Testament. And it means gaining understanding over the long term, personal acquaintance. Those who are truly wise, those who understand God, those who walk in the Spirit and apply this wisdom to practical everyday living. James adds that the practical exercise of their living is done with gentleness. And gentleness is an interesting word. It simply means power under control. That's what gentleness is. It's power under control. The point is that true biblical wisdom is put into action, but the believer must walk in humility before God and men. Wisdom involves application. This morning we were in Genesis chapter 3, looking at the fall of mankind in our Sunday school class. And we talked about what were some of the implications of the fall, and I, I kind of drew on the whiteboard this, this, this triad of prayer, the uh, prayer, the study, the meditation, the contemplation of Scripture, and fellowship in the church. And we broke those down to say, well, what does this involve? And my brother Lewis made a great observation. He said, when it comes to Scripture, yes, it is the meditation, it is the contemplation of the Word of God, but he went on to say, but it is the application of the Word of God. It's the submission to the Word of God. What is true biblical wisdom? It is not merely the accumulation of that data, but it is the application. It is the submission to that very word. That very word then makes us wise. It makes us biblically wise because we're walking right in the sight of God. There is an exciting contrast in James chapter 3. In verses 3 to 13, James shows us, you are what you say when he talks about the tongue. But in 13 through 18, speaking of wisdom, James implies you are how you live. How you live reveals who you are. And don't ever be deceived. Please, I beg everybody, I go over this time and time again. Do not define your salvation by something you did in the past, some particular action you did in the past, but is not being reflected day to day in your life today. God saves us, he sanctifies us, he conforms us into the image of Christ and those things that we loved about the world prior to our salvation die and they fall away. We even see as we study the book of James a lot of the influence that James took from the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, particularly the Beatitudes. Look at your Bible at Matthew 17, uh, Matthew 7. Verses 17 through 20. We know this James was the half-brother of Jesus. So I would think that Jesus would have some influence over him. Look what it says, Matthew 7. This is the end of the Beatitudes. Verses 17 to 20. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, 
nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruit. Listen, church, let us never attempt to take the grace of God for granted. If word one is not living right, if there is outright disregard for the word of God, if there is disobedience to the word of God, to the holiness of God, to the things of God, a consistent disregard for the study of the word of God, a consistent disregard for prayer, a consistent disregard for fellowship and service in his church, that should cause you to stop. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourself, examine yourself, see if you're in the faith. What do you have to lose lest you fail the test? Notice how verse 13 ends. Notice this. He asked the question, who among you is is wise and understanding? Notice the answer. Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in gentleness and wisdom. Who's wise? Who's understanding? It's reflective in his deeds. He walks humbly with his God. They walk obediently to their God. They're applying the word of God. And they live in the fear of God. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now James contrasts the test of godly wisdom, and he contrasts it with worldly wisdom. Look at verses 14 and 15. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. In verse 13, James defines what wisdom and understanding look like. He says it should be reflected in good behavior, in good deeds, in gentleness. In verse 14, James shows us what worldly wisdom looks like. And what we see here is a classic compare and contrast. Verse 13 is being contrasted with verses 14 and 15. James uses two phrases that speak to a worldly perspective of wisdom. Those phrases are bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That word bitter jealousy, that's a word that means for like acrid type of water. It's you speaking of brackish water, you know, where the river meets the ocean and the water, the river water is salty, it's brackish. And that selfish Ambition refers to one who is somewhat has a resentful attitude. James combines this with the term selfish ambition, acting for one's own gain. This was a word that that was used for politicians, probably should still be used for politicians today. Those that are in power, but they're not seeking the benefit of others, they're only seeking the benefit of themselves. And James' whole contrast is this. If this is the motivation of the heart of a person who claims Christ, James states that we lie against the truth if that is the case. If we are filled with doing that which is self-seeking, that which is self-serving, 
Then we lie against the truth. He goes further in verse 15 and says that this form of wisdom, this is worldly wisdom, right? This form of wisdom is not of God. He makes that abundantly clear. But he says it is demonic. It is of the world. Look at the world today. Look at the wisdom that is coming out of the world today. How do we find ourselves in a situation where wrong is being called right, right is being called wrong? How do we find ourselves in a situation and in a world where absolute truths have been obliterated, destroyed? The only truth is what you feel. How do we find ourselves in a world today where the measure of everything is whether I am happy? That's it. It comes from an erosion. It comes from a wiping out of the biblical wisdom that used to underlie this nation. Now, I'm going to make a statement here. I don't believe that every one of our forefathers were born-again Christians. Okay? I'm going to put that out there. There is evidence to suggest that many of them were not. Even framers of our Constitution. But there was a baseline. And that baseline was based on the Ten Commandments. And a lot of our societal laws were based on that framework. What have we done with that framework? We have wiped it out. We have wiped it out. As a matter of fact, modern man's thinking today is, don't tell me what I should believe. I'll live as I want. I'll believe as I want. And I will do as I want. And you have nothing to say about it. Let me share something. When they say you have nothing to say about it, they're not pointing at you and me. They're pointing at God. You have nothing to say about it. No one tells me what to do. And let me tell you something. This isn't unique to America. Every day I meet with people from all over the world. Every day at 12 o'clock I meet with people from all over the world, have a prayer meeting with people from all over the world. And whether they're in the UK, whether they're in Australia, whether they're in China, no matter where they are on the planet, this is the common theme. Now you talk about biblical wisdom. We're a people who submit to this word. We're people who submit to the God of the word. We're people who say, I'm not going to live the way I want to live. I'm going to live in accordance with the way God tells me to live. And what happens is we come into immediate conflict with the culture. Which is why we as believers have to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. Why we as believers have to believe like the psalmist that thy word I hide in my heart, I hide it in my heart, I treasure it in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. 
And when it comes between the culture and when it comes between the Word of God, a hundred times, out of a hundred times, we choose the Word of God. That's what we must do. That wisdom gets us in trouble. That wisdom is a hill that we should choose to die on. That wisdom that is given to us from the Word of God brings eternal life. And that's why we stand upon the Word of God. That's why we shun the foolishness of the world. That's why we can't come to Christ with selfish ambition. In verse 15, James says that this wisdom is not of the world. Paul says the same thing in Romans 2, 8, and 9 when he states, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek. In Philippians 1.17, he writes this, the Apostle Paul, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonments. How often do we see many, many, many professed Christians absorbed in doctrine but rather than having a spirit of love, they have a spirit of contention. It's all about the argument. It's all about winning the argument. I tell people now, you know what? Somebody comes up with some other foolish thing. I, I, I'm not arguing anymore. I'm done. I'm going to say the word of God says this. Oh, but you don't know. This is blah, blah. I, I'm done. If you want to have a heartfelt conversation and you want to go through the word, I'm all for it, man. But you, you come up to me with both pistols blazing and you're ready to shoot and you're just waiting for me to see the wrong word so you have your pre-rehearsed little nugget over there. I'm done. I'm not going to have that conversation. Listen, the gospel is more than just mere doctrine. The gospel is truth. It is love. It is obedience. It is humility. It is so much more. Church, it is essential that we remember and remind ourselves that everything we do must be that of the heart. Doctrine without the heart of Christ, that's Phariseeism. Everything we do must be of the heart. A right heart before God is not contentious or self-serving or self-seeking, but it's humble and peaceable before God and others. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah. You may, you may know this verse, Micah 6, 8. Listen to the words of the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the requirement. Isn't that interesting? What does God require of us? 
but to do justice, godly justice, to love kindness, godly kindness, and to walk humbly before our God. Look at verse 16 of James 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder. And every evil thing. James hits this point perfectly. He states that there is disorder, there is confusion of every evil thing. There is disorder, chaos caused by human wisdom, and it is good for nothing wisdom that does not profit. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 18 and 19, Paul writes this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become foolish that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. In 2 Corinthians, as Paul is defending himself, he's defending his authority, he's defending his apostleship from false teachers and false apostles who infiltrated the church at Corinth. He doesn't defend himself by exalting himself, but rather by exalting Christ to show that those false teachers are indeed selfishly ambitious. His view is summed up here in 2 Corinthians 4-5. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. He says, the wisdom of the world is foolishness. Now let me tell you what the wisdom of God is. The wisdom of God is not in me. The wisdom of God is Christ Jesus. And guess what I am? I am nothing but a lowly bondservant. I am a doulos. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. That is my wisdom. And the world is going to see that wisdom is foolishness. But that is the wisdom that God calls us to. Oh, the contrast between the worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. Paul says, this is godly wisdom. Lastly, we see the fruit of godly wisdom. In verses 17 and 18, James describes the fruit of godly wisdom. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. James now proceeds to define godly wisdom. Listen, you want to know what godly wisdom is? Looks like he's going to tell you right here in verses 17 and 18. James proceeds. And by the way, there's a very, very interesting parallel between James 3, 17 and 18 and Galatians where Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit. But James describes true godly wisdom as the following. He says, number one, it is pure. That word pure means it's pure in every aspect of it. It's pure inside and out. It's holy. 
The wisdom of God is pure. It's without defect. It's holy. He says it's peaceable. That word means that it's God's gift of wholeness, knowing God's will. So we know God's will. It's a peaceable will. The third thing he says, it's gentle. It's relaxing over strict standards. It keeps the spirit of the law. He goes on to say that it is reasonable. That means it's ready to obey. He says it's full of mercy, and it's full of the mercy, the pity, the compassion of God. He said it bears good fruit, good byproducts. It's the natural byproduct of that wisdom is to produce good fruit. He says it's unwavering without ambiguity. It's certain. He goes on to say it's without hypocrisy. Simply put, it's not a phony. It's not two-faced. It doesn't wear a mask. There's not a mask behind the player. Here he defines what true godly wisdom is. Look at the similarity to this, to Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Just turn there in your Bibles to Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Look at the similarity as Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. The Apostle Paul writes this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. You see the similarity there? The wisdom is the same as the fruit. Paul says the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We talked about this on our Tuesday night Bible study when we looked at the what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right here you see this is what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That the byproduct of your life is producing such fruit. Go back to James chapter 3. So we look at verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In the King James it says, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The main thought of this verse is that righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The question then becomes, who are the ones that make peace? That, that's the question. And the answer has to be, those who are of the Lord. Those who walk by the Spirit. Those whose tongue reflect the work of regeneration in their lives. Those who know the wisdom of God, and it is reflected in their lives. Who are they? The saved. The born again. The regenerated. The redeemed of God. Those are the ones who know the wisdom of God. 
It is those who produce a continual cycle of peace. Peace with their fellow man. And peace with God. Ephesians 1.17 says this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So we get to the part where we now have to consider, what does this have to do with me? Right? That's what all you want to know. I just get a long way, I just take a long way to get you there. What does this have to do with me? What's the practical application to me? One of my favorites, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. One is merely gathering and acquiring factual information while the other is the power and the capacity to apply it. It's precisely what James is saying here in James chapter 3. As we read in 3.13, Who among you is wise? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and gentleness and wisdom. What is godly wisdom? Godly wisdom is not the accumulation of facts. It does not lie merely in the intellect. But it is revealed in the believer's character. Listen, this book of James is so overwhelmingly convicting. Just about at every turn. Right? James talks to us about persevering in trials. James talks to us about the test of trials. James James talks to us about works and faith. He makes that statement, hey, faith without works is a dead faith, which probably should challenge just about everybody. And then in chapter 3, he goes on to tell us, hey, you are how you speak. Which is something that should set us back. But then he takes it further. He says the wisdom of God is truly reflected in how you live. You are who you speak. You say you're wise. It's going to be reflected in your character. And in your deeds. The wisdom of God, as we saw, is that which is pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits. Dr. Martin Laurie Jones goes on to say this, and I love this. I love this. I'm going to hang this in my office. The Christian faith is ultimately not only a matter of doctrine or understanding or intellect it is a condition of the heart that's what the Christian faith is about we know from chapter 3 and all of chapter 2 that faith without works is a dead faith and therefore it's incumbent upon us to say how does that apply to me if the, if the Holy Spirit convicts you at this moment, maybe the Spirit of God is convicting you at, at, at this moment over, over the lack of genuine, authentic faith. 
then I beg you, turn to Christ. Repent of your sins. Cry out to God for mercy that he would save you. Listen, don't rely on anything else. Don't rely on some past historical event that you're still the same person from that event, but you're chalking up that one point. Oh, I, I, I did this, therefore I'm good. That's not how it works. A broken and a contrite heart. The word of God says, thou will not despise. We can't claim Christ the Savior and say, but he's not my Lord. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's a lie from the pit of hell. He is either Savior or Lord, or he's not Lord at all. You either bow in obedience to him and you obey him and when you're convicted, you come back to Christ and you repent and you turn. But if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. All of the old things have passed away. Everything has become new. It is either or. You won't know biblical wisdom. Study the Bible all you want. If you study the Bible all you want with a wrong heart, you're just going to be you're going to get to eternity with knowledge but without Christ. And I don't know, I don't know what could be more important. The most important thing if I could do it, if I could tie a rope around people and drag them through the gates of heaven, I would do it. But these are sober truths. These are things we have to deal with. These are things we have to wrestle with. And we have to see, are we right in Christ? The word of God tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10, it says these words that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe on the heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So many people get these two verses wrong. They look at verse 9 and they say the only thing necessary is a profession. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. What the Apostle Paul is saying is if you confess with your mouth, if you believe that God raised them from the dead, if you say that Jesus is Lord, that's going to result in salvation. Why? Because with the heart, with the heart, not with the mouth, with the heart, Man believes resulting in righteousness. That's that entrusting yourself totally and completely to Christ. And when that happens, here's the lordship aspect. You ready? When that happens, what happens then? Then with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. The heart is changed first. And when the heart is changed, one can confess Jesus is Lord. Remember Jesus? We started this last week, two weeks ago. Out of the heart, what speaks? The mouth speaks. 
The repentant heart confesses its sin and puts all of its faith and all of its trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The one who believes obeys. You could take that to the bank. The one who believes obeys. And we're not talking about sinless perfection, just to be crystal clear. But the believer obeys because the believer loves Jesus Christ. That is the one who's born again. In a moment, we're going to go before the table of the Lord. How critical, how critical is it that if we partake of these elements, that we are right with God? Listen, no one goes to heaven because their mother went to heaven. No one goes to heaven because their daddy went to heaven. Or your grandma, or your grandpa, or your auntie, or whoever. Everybody's got to come to the foot of the cross and bow at the knees to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and confess Him as Lord. And as we sang in our hymn, all to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give my heart to thee. What's your decision for today? Let's bow in a word of prayer.